Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. You can open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. Uh, Here at New Life, we have a a vision. Our vision is that ordinary people would be empowered for extraordinary living by the power of the gospel. That's why we exist. Ordinary people empowered for extraordinary living by the power of the gospel. We believe that an appropriate way to accomplish that vision is through five basic emphases or values. One of those is worship. That's what we're doing right now gathering on Sunday mornings to worship the risen Savior. We call this adoration. Another way we do this is by establishing community, uh, friendship, fellowship, connections among us. We call this belonging. Uh, We also do this by um, engaging in mercy ministries, seeking to help the needy in our church, in our community. We call this compassion. We also seek to do this by training, instructing, Um, forming disciples of Jesus through the teaching of the scriptures and by thinking theologically about all things. We call this discipleship. And then the last value here is evangelism. Um, We believe it's important to share the gospel with people, to tell people about Jesus, to evangelize. And that can happen in uh, at least three different ways. One, just personal evangelism as you share the gospel with friends and family, etc., can happen through church planting. That's something we value here and um, uh, have done with our daughter church, City Hope Fellowship. But another very important and essential way that we engage in evangelism is through foreign missions. Foreign missions is a kind of evangelism. And we believe very strongly here at Christians that all, or here at New Life, that all Christians should have a heart for all of these, these values and that includes foreign missions. My question to you today is this, do you have a heart for missions? Do you have a concern that the gospel goes forth to reach all the people of the world? Do you have a heart for that, a concern for that? The great commission from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is to go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say go and make disciples of your nation. Now, of course, your nation is included in all nations, but it's larger than that. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, a church of our size can't reach every single nation, but we are called to engage in the effort to reach the world beyond our own nation through foreign missions. Well, today we're looking at a passage in the book of Genesis. We're just going to stay in our Genesis series. We've been in this series for several months going through the book of Genesis. We've reached chapter 10. Chapter 10 in God's good providence just happens to be perfect for Missions Sunday. Genesis chapter 10 is what is often called the Table of Nations. And it explains to us how the human race proliferated and spread over the entire globe. And so that's the text that we are going to read today. Uh, This chapter is um, a genealogy. 
We had a genealogy earlier in chapter 5, and here we have another genealogy, and I will uh, warn you that this genealogy might be a little bit difficult to listen to, but I promise you it will be more difficult to read. Uh, There are a number of kind of maybe odd-sounding names here, Um, but we believe that all of God's Word is inspired and profitable for teaching and training in righteousness. That includes even Genesis chapter 10. So I'm going to read this whole thing. Um, Pray for me as I do this. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, this chapter is called. Genesis chapter 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephoth, and Togermah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtaka, the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dadon, Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man, he was a mighty uh, hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From the land, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Nephtahim, Pathrusim, Kashtahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpaxad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gaither, and Mosh. Arpaxad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalef, Hazarmapheth, Jera, Hadaram, Usal, Dildah, Obal, Abimael, Sheba. Ophir, Havilah, and Johab, Jobab. 
All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Holy God, we pray, please, by your spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in Genesis chapter 10 today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay, so what, what do we make of this genealogy in Genesis chapter 10? Um, there are, I think, some pretty clear directions for us, um, principles for us to gain, and the first one is this, that there is a basic unity to all the nations. There is a basic unity to all the nations of the world. Now, as I read that passage, um, a lot of these names I know seem very kind of obscure and um, uh, difficult to understand, and in fact, that's okay because uh, not even scholars know every single name in this list or uh, where they came from or where they went, so a, a lot of these names are kind of unknown to us. Um, but you might have noticed that some of the names were actually familiar to you. You, you probably recognized some, and uh, you probably recognize those names as playing an instrumental role in the history of Israel. And so remember, this is written, we learned last week, to Israel as they came out of Egypt during the Exodus. Moses is writing this to uh, explain who this God is that they worship. And so we're uh, seeing here some very key elements in the history of Israel. So for instance, you look at verse 6, um, we've got names like um, Egypt, right? I mean, you've heard of Egypt before. Uh, if you have an NIV, it would say uh, Mitzrayim, and that's just another way of describing uh, Egypt. Um, you'll see the word Canaan there. You've heard of the, the land of Canaan. That will play a, a major role in Israel's history. You also see the word, or the name Cush there. This maybe is a little more obscure, but you might remember in Numbers chapter 12 that Moses married a Cushite woman. Do you remember that? And that ended up causing some problem among um, Miriam and uh, Aaron. And uh, Cush is actually Ethiopia, we think, kind of northern Africa. So uh, Moses married an African woman. And uh, there was concern about that in Numbers 12, but here we have the beginnings of uh, the Cushites. Verse 7, notice the, um, the name Sheba there at the end. That might ring a bell. If you know the story of Solomon, remember the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon to kind of marvel at his wisdom and riches. Here's the beginning of this area called Sheba. Verse 11, as Pastor Brian has already mentioned in the story of Jonah, we have uh, Assyria and the city Nineveh being built. So yeah, this is a city, a nation that becomes an enemy of Israel, but it's the city to which Jonah was sent to proclaim the gospel, Nineveh. Verse 14, we have um, this uh, group of people, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came. If you know the story of David and Saul in First, Second Samuel, uh, you know that Israel uh, battled frequently with the Philistines. Verse 23, we have a mention of this town or this area called uh, Uz. It's kind of in the middle of the list there. Uh, Uz, that is Job's hometown. If you look at Job chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that place mentioned. 
And uh, one more, go down to verse 25, you see two Eber were born, two sons. Uh, many scholars believe that Eber is the word from whom or from what the, the word Hebrew is derived. This is an early um, beginning of the nation of Israel. Notice in this whole genealogy, the nation of Israel is not mentioned explicitly, uh, even though this is showing uh, many aspects that are relevant to the nation of Israel. But nonetheless, we do get this clue, the beginning of the Hebrew nation, uh, referred to here by this clan called Eber. Uh, you'll also notice here that Eber is mentioned as a descendant of Shem. If you go back up to verse 21, these are the descendants of Shem. Eber comes from uh, the line of Shem. And you might recall from last week that Shem is the, the godly line, remember? So I, I remind you of this in every sermon in, in Genesis, that this is all flowing from that promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, that a descendant is coming from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that there are two major lines, descendants of humanity, descendants of the woman, descendants of the serpent. And so... Uh, a promise is made to the woman, from the woman then comes Seth, from Seth comes Noah, from Noah comes Shem, from Shem comes Eber, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, from the nation of Israel comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So there are certain things here that maybe are a little more kind of recognizable maybe then than they seemed. But we see a basic organization to this. Um, <clears throat> Moses here has organized these descendants according to his three sons. So again, this is after the flood. Flood's over. Um, Noah and his family have emerged from the ark, and they're beginning to live life again, and they're beginning to have children. And so uh, here's how the text is organized. Japheth and his descendants in verses 2 through 5. Ham and his descendants, verses 6 through 20. Shem and his descendants, verses 21 to 31, as we were just looking at Eber. Uh, you might also be interested to know that Shem is kind of the beginning of the word uh, Semite. You know, you hear about anti-Semites, those who um, are against the Jewish race. Uh, a Semite is a Jewish person. That word Semite comes from this word Shem, from whom Eber comes and the Hebrew race. But the purpose of this whole chapter um, is pretty clear. Verses 1 and 32 are, are very similar. And they're telling us these are the generations of Noah and Noah's children. If you go to verse 32, the chapter concludes with this claim. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these the nations spread across abroad on the earth after the flood. So Moses wants us to see that here the, the human race is, is multiplying, just like God commanded, right? Be fruitful and multiply. He said that to Adam, well, the entire human race, aside from Noah and his family, got wiped out. So when Noah came out of the ark, God says it to Noah, again, be fruitful and multiply. And so chapter 10 is just showing how humanity is doing exactly what God commanded. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying, and they're spreading across the earth. So here is... Uh, <clears throat> A, a map, I'm not sure how well you, you can see that, it's better on this screen over here, but um, 
given what we know about all of these names and tribes and clans and, and where they eventually wound up, at least the ones we know anything about, we can conclude that this is kind of how the three sons of Noah dispersed, that um, uh, Japheth and his descendants kind of went north, so this would be up in the area of uh, partially Asia, but also Europe, and the descendants of Shem came down kind of to the southeast in the area of Arabia, that's Saudi Arabia now, and then the descendants of Ham uh, spread down to the southwest, and so this would be kind of northern Africa area and Ethiopia, as I mentioned, where uh, the Cushites are or were. So <clears throat> this is what Moses is telling us, that this is how the human race spread throughout the globe. This is why we have so many different nations, tribes, and languages on the earth today. It started right here, and it continued to go from here and spread throughout the entire globe over the course of the centuries of human history. But, but here's something else that uh, is another purpose, I think, that we see for this passage, and that is that all of these people, all of these tribes, and all of these languages, all of these tongues, all of these nations, all descend from one person. Ultimately, Adam, of course, but again, we've had the flood, and so what I've been telling you is that Noah has come off the ark as kind of a new Adam, a new head of the human race. So the entire human race, all the peoples of the globe, have a common ancestor, we all have a common ancestor. As human beings, we have a bond with every other person on the globe. We have something in common with every other person on the globe. Now, this doesn't mean that every cultural practice is, is equally good. It doesn't mean that every single person is equally gifted or able. It doesn't mean that every single person is going to be saved. But it does mean that we have something in common with people all over the globe, no matter how far away they are from us, no matter how strange we might think their customs are, no matter how much we don't like their food or the way they dress or whatever, there's a tendency in all of us to be very suspicious of people who are different than us, right? I mean, that's just a, a, a result of the fall. But what we're learning here is we're all descended from one person, Noah, Adam and then Noah, there is a kind of a unity to the human race. There is a sense in which we can say we are one. <laughs> you know, you hear that cliche a, a lot, and I think that's used for purposes that I wouldn't agree with, but there's a sense in which it's true. We are one with the rest of humanity in this sense. In other words, there, there is no superior race of people, and there are no inferior races of people. And it was the Nazis who wanted us to believe that there was a superior race, the Aryan race. They wanted us to believe that the Aryans were greater than everybody else. Well, that's, that's, that's a falsehood. That's not true. And there are others who want you to believe that there are some inferior races, like some people, even Christians in the United States, particularly during the time of slavery, who wanted us to believe that African Americans were somehow an inferior race. Well, those are both serious, egregious errors that are not consistent with what the scriptures teach. We are all descended from a common ancestor. We are all image bearers of God, and we are all sinful and fallen before this God. We are all in need of a savior, and that's why missions is so important. 
That's why we are called to reach the world. There is no nation, tribe that does not warrant our attention and our love. There is nobody on the earth to whom we should look the other way when it comes to the spread of the gospel. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of nations. There's a lot of languages. We're all basically unified as descendants of Noah. So that's the first thing I think we can get from this text. Second thing is this. There is a common problem also for all the nations. There's a common problem. Remember when I said after the flood that the flood did not cure the problem of sin in the human heart. Right? Noah went on to the ark with his sinful heart. He brought sin with him, and he brought that sin out of the ark with him after the flood when he emerged and began to um, work and populate the earth. The flood didn't cure the problem. Sin continues. And as nations then spread and proliferate across the globe, so does sin. Sin continues with the spread and infects and corrupts every people, every tribe, every nation, every language. And so we can see that also in this text because you'll note, as I've already alluded to, that a lot of these people are enemies of Israel. They're enemies of God's people. If you're an enemy of God's people, you are an enemy of God. You can't distinguish the two. And so we have, again, Egypt, as I already mentioned, verses 6 and 13. Of course, Egypt enslaved Israel for many years. Um, Assyria, in verse 11, Assyria conquered and exiled um, God's people. Later in the Old Testament, we have um, the Canaanites mentioned in verse 18, um, how the Canaanites dispersed, and so the Canaanites are the ones who occupied the promised land. Canaanites were um, engaged in all sorts of bizarre false worship, uh, even to the point of sacrificing children to their gods. I mean, the Canaanites were a wicked people. They were sinful people. And they were enemies of Israel when they sought to take the promised land. We have in verse 19 a mention, another name I think that will probably be familiar to you, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are just symbols of debauchery and uh, rebellion against God. Most of us know these cities from the sexual sin that existed in those cities. God himself in Genesis says their sin is very grave. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, very grave. So we don't know about a lot of these um, uh, clans and tribes as to kind of what kind of sinful things they might have engaged in, but we do know that sin has infected the hearts of every single one of them, as Romans then in the New Testament will remind us. Paul says, Jews and Gentiles alike, that's just a way of saying everybody, all nations, all peoples, all of them alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. There's no exception. There's no nation somewhere far away that somehow has avoided the fall and is this pristine, pure, good, morally upright people. That person, tribe, clan doesn't exist according to Romans 3, and according to what we see here in Genesis 10. There's also a mention of this guy, Nimrod, in verses 8 through 11. 
Cush fathered Nimrod, the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before uh, the Lord. The NIV translates this as warrior. He was a fighter. He was a powerful man. We, we get the implication he was a violent man. Um, but one clue we get about what kind of guy Nimrod was is based on the meaning of his name. His name, Nimrod, that word means we shall rebel. Nimrod is a symbol of rebellion against God. And you go on to verses 10 and 11 and you see what Nimrod did. He was the, not only a, a warrior and a hunter, but he, he built cities. The beginning of his kingdom was, and then there, there are these cities that he built. He built Nineveh, but notice there in verse 10, the first city mentioned, Babel. That should also ring a bell. Right, chapter 11, we're going to learn more about Babel next week, but Babel is the, the, the beginning of what will eventually become Babylon. And Babylon is the probably most clear, explicit symbol of wickedness and rebellion against God that there exists in the Bible. Babylon, the wicked city of the world in defiance against God, finds its origin in this guy named Nimrod. So, there's a unity to the human race. We're all together in, in one way, but there's this basic common problem, and that is the sinfulness of all of our hearts and the sinfulness of the hearts of every single nation. And so what that means is that that problem, that sin problem, that spiritual issue is, should be our primary concern as a church as we think about reaching the nations. We have a message called the gospel that provides a solution to the sin problem. And that's our task primarily as missionaries, to make sure that people know what the Bible says about their spiritual condition, that they're dead in their trespasses and sins, that they have refused to give thanks to God, that they have neglected to worship him as he has commanded them. And in a variety of other ways, they live in rebellion against him and are under his condemnation. People aren't going to come to that conclusion necessarily on their own. They, they need to be told that, and they also need to be told that there is a solution to that in the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection. People aren't getting that on their own. They've got to be told. There's a sin problem that corrupts the entire human race. And friends, we're the church. We're called to address that. That's our primary goal here. Sin infects the human race in so many cases here. These people are enemies of God's people. And you know that that continues even to this day and has continued over history. It's not just in the Bible that we see nations rising up against God's people. It's happening today as well. Voice of the Martyrs tells us that more people are being persecuted for the name of Jesus today than ever before in human history. The Pew Research Center, not a Christian group by any means, says that Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the earth today. Voice of the Martyrs uh, releases this map. Um, <clears throat> these colors, they're kind of both kind of orange, but this kind of yellowy orange. <laughs> color. These are countries where there is hostility to the gospel, to the Christian faith, to God's people. They'd say these are hostile regions. Uh, the orange area are areas where the gospel is restricted. 
There's actually laws against the gospel being proclaimed and the church thriving. I mean, that's a pretty big part of the world, particularly when you consider the most populated part of the world is right here, and it's almost entirely restricted. So what we see true in the scriptures is still true today. Hearts defiant against God, angry against God's people, seeking to persecute God's people, living apart from knowledge of the gospel. And friends, this is why missions is so important. We have to reach these people. It's the only thing that's going to change this situation are hearts that are transformed by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that won't happen unless the gospel is declared to these people. Some of our missionaries, some of our missionaries serve in restricted areas, in these dangerous areas. I mean, if anything, that should cause your heart to well up in compassion for them. They need your prayers. They, they, they're, they're, they're going forth with some risk to their livelihood and their safety and their health. But primarily, friends, our, our mission here, because of the common problem for all nations, that is sin, our primary mission is, is spiritual. Yes, it's good to go to another country and help them build a barn or paint a house or you know, get water supply flowing into the village or whatever it is. I mean, those are, those are good things. Don't hear me discounting that in any way. Those are acts of service and love to people. We should do those things. But those things are secondary to the task of getting the gospel to people. That's what we're called to do. A guy named Andy Johnson writes this, the church should especially labor to fulfill its unique mission to guard the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and disciple those who respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. If our churches fail at that mission, no matter what other good things we do, we will have failed in the unique mandate that Christ has given to us. Lots of people can build barns, but only certain groups, there's only one group that's called to proclaim the gospel. And that's the church. We shouldn't neglect that for other things, even though doing those other things has its place, is good and right and helpful. But it's all because of the common problem that all nations deal with, which is sin. The last thing to consider is this, that there is one great Savior for all the nations. There is one great Savior for all the nations. One of the things we really kind of marvel at and, and value in, in the world is just the diversity of, um, of practices that we see throughout the world. And you'll even see that throughout this passage in verses 5, 20, and 31. It talks about their languages, their clans, their lands, their nations. There's the, the suggestion there is that all of these different um, people groups are, are different. They're distinct, you know. And so today we... We look at the diversity of nations and, and we value that, the, the different foods they eat and the, the way they dress and the music they listen to and that there's diversity among the nations that we can value and affirm. But friends, there is not a diversity of gods. There's one God and there's one Savior and there's one way to be reconciled to that God. There's much diversity that we can affirm. There's not a diversity of gods. The, the Bible is clear. Look, look what Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Everybody, for I'm God and there is no other. There's no other God to worship than the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, 
Acts 17, Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Something like Paul might have Genesis 10 in, in mind here. There's one God. And if anybody is going to believe in that one God, again, they must be told, which is why missions is so essential. In Luke chapter 10, um, there's this very famous phrase. You hear it at probably every missions conference you've ever been to, which is, um, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And and that's very appropriate. It's true. The harvest, there's a lot of work to be done and few people to do it. That's what that means. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are are few. But that's in Luke chapter 10, and right before Jesus said that, he did something. He sent out 70 of his disciples and told them to go to every town and preach the gospel. He sent out 70 people. 70 people. Numbers are sometimes symbolic in the Bible. Seven is the meaning of totality and and fullness. Seventy people he sent out. I have to believe that Jesus was intentional in that. And do you know that in Genesis chapter 10, there are 70 names listed in this chapter. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, I believe Moses intended that as a symbolic way of saying that in Genesis 10, we have a list of all the nations of the entire world, and when Jesus sends people out in Luke chapter 10 to preach the gospel, the fact that it's 70 is a way of determining or communicating that this is a gospel for all the world, a gospel for all the nations. But these people were sent. Jesus sent them, and that's what we do as a church. We, we send. We, we send people out. Some of us go like the Schumachers and, and Pearl. Uh, the rest of us send. And David prayed for our missionaries here, but I'm just going to close by, by just letting you see where they are, and I just want you to be acquainted with our missionaries. Um, here's where they all are. Okay, this is just a, a world map, so you can see how spread out they are, thanks to, to Jen Bergman for preparing these slides for me. Um, here are uh, the Ogles and the Thompsons. Um, here in North America right now, they have been in a restricted area uh, in the past, but they can't be there anymore, so they're home for, for right now. Um, the Jeshes and the Lees in kind of South America, Mexico and Panama. Um, here are uh, the Senses and the Schumachers, uh, both preparing to go to Europe. Not there yet, but God willing, they'll be there. Uh, the Files and Phil and Barb in Asia. The files in uh, Tokyo, uh, also home temporarily now, hopefully temporarily, and then Phil and Barb in the Asian Crescent. We've uh, sent a couple small-term groups to go visit Phil and Barb. And then lastly, there's Pearl, (coughs) uh, who's in a number of different places, actually, and Virginia, who's in in Shanghai, uh, another restricted area. So friends, let me just ask you this as we we finish. Um, Do you have a heart for missions? How are you involved? What are you doing for for missionaries? I mean, it could be that you just pray for them. God doesn't call us all to go, that's true. But do you pray for them? Do you pray for our missionaries? 
Have you considered giving to our missionaries? Have you considered going to the nations? Maybe a short-term trip, maybe a long-term trip. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe God is calling you to be a long-term permanent missionary. It's possible. Whatever you expend in the task of missions, I just want you to know it's, it's all going to be worth it. <laughs> the day is going to come when we're going to see that it was so totally worth it because here's what John says, a vision that he saw and it's recorded for us in, in Revelation. Uh, at the end of the age, John says this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. <laughs> what, what a joyful time that's going to be. All the nations and tribes gathered around the throne of Jesus, proclaiming this good news. That's why we do missions. Father, we thank you so much for um, the fact that you give us the privilege of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Make us a church that loves the nations. Make us sacrificial. Make us generous. Lead those to go who you want to go, Father. But use us to take the gospel to the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.